Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. As we're going through 1 and 2 Samuel on Sunday mornings. If you don't have a Bible, we do have Bibles uh, by the doors. And those are for you to take. We're giving them away. So if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for to give you one so you can take it home and study and then study with us on Sunday mornings. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time that we have together right now to press into your presence, to hear your word. We know that there's power in your word. And we come with gratitude and faith and expectation that you're going to speak to us this morning. And as we wrestle with this question of why you say no sometimes in our lives, God, we pray that you would bring us peace. I pray for those that are in a season where they're experiencing a closed door, that you would encourage them, that you would bless them. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. When God says no, sometimes it's difficult to hear the words no. Do any of you like the word no? Especially when you have your hopes up, you have your desires. And it's even more difficult when you're desiring something good. I think a no makes more sense when it's sinful. We get it. We go, I know why God would say no to this because it's bad for me. It destroys my life. It hurts the heart of God. But when God says no to something that's a good godly desire, it can be confusing. And I know that some of you have wrestled with this in a very deep way. Maybe you've desired to be married. You desired to have a godly marriage, but yet the Lord has not provided that for you and you find yourself being single. And God has said no for the time being. And that is something that causes great heartache in your life. Maybe you're desiring to have children. And for whatever reason, God hasn't allowed the husband and wife to to have kids. And you watch other people have kids and these kids be born. and, And sometimes, you know, some kids born in really difficult circumstances and you go, wow, we would love this child. We would have a home for this child. Everything seems to be set up except for the fact that God, you're not allowing us to have kids. And that's very painful. That, that's one of the deeper pains to walk through in life. I know some of you have been at the bedside of your wife, of your children, and prayed that God would save their life. They're, they're headed out. They're, they're passing away, and you've pleaded with the Lord. God, would you please allow them to have more life here on this earth? And God said no. That's very difficult when God chooses to, to take your spouse, to be home with the Lord, to take one of, of your kids. Maybe some of you are at this place where you've worked hard towards a particular job and you've done it for the right reasons. You want to support your family. You want to be a faithful provider for for your family. You've knocked on these doors. You've worked hard to, to get an education. But for some reason, God has said no. He hasn't opened up that door for that particular job. If you haven't wrestled with this question yet, you will. There's going to be a point in your life When you have a good godly desire and the Lord says no. And that's exactly where David's at. He's at a a really wonderful time of his life. He's established as king. The Ark of the Covenant is in Jerusalem. He has rest from his enemies. And he says, God, I would love to build you a temple. I would love for the Ark of the Covenant to have a permanent dwelling place instead of being in a tent. And surprisingly, God says no. We would look at this request and we think this would be a slam dunk. 
Why wouldn't God say yes to this, but it wasn't God's plan. It wasn't what God had in store. The way that David responds, I think, uh, provides us great encouragement as well. This chapter divides itself into three sections. The first section is David's desire. And then we have God's answer. And then it comes with David's response. So let's look in verse 1. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from his enemies all around. So he's in his house of cedar. He's in a very comfortable place, quite a contrast from when he lived in the cave of Adullam, has rest from his enemies that God has provided. Many times in the Old Testament, when people find blessing and security, they drift from God. They wander away from the Lord. That's our tendency as well. When things are difficult, we're crying out to God, we're dependent upon God, but we can drift when things are comfortable. But not David. Here he is at a time of rest, a time of prosperity, and notice what he does in verse 2. Then the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. So if you're taking notes, first we see David's desire. That's number one, David's desire. He says, here I am, I'm living in better conditions than the Ark of the Covenant. It was very abnormal at this time to have a house of cedar. David has that. God's provided that for him, and he wants the Ark to not be in the elements. It's in a tent. It's in the tabernacle. I'm sure there were days when the priests went in to do the things that they had to do that God had called them to do where it was cold, it was windy. You know, the rain would fall upon the tent and he's thinking it would be wonderful for the Ark of the Covenant to be in a permanent dwelling place. If you were with us last week, we saw that David had the Ark of the Covenant brought to Jerusalem and expressed his heart of worship. David's a worshiper and he continues in this place. And I hope that we would examine the desires of our hearts this morning. If you were to put the top three, the things that you really long for in your life, is it to worship God? Is it to be close to God? Is it for God's presence to be near in our lives? And that's David. We can't say enough about his desire. It's wonderful. It's God-honoring. In verse 3, then Nathan said to the king, go do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. A great friendship between Nathan and David. They're spending time together. David is going to be a greater man because of Nathan's influence in his life. We'll see that as we travel through 2 Samuel. Nathan doesn't stop here and pray. He doesn't seek God and say, is this what God would want? He just goes, this is a good thing. This is a godly desire. So go for it. Do all that's in your heart. It's so easy to do that. So in our own lives and in counseling with others, Oh, that's a godly thing. That's a good desire. Why don't you just just go for it? But it's not going to be God's will. So the second thing that we look at is God's answer. From verse 4 to verse 17 is what God has to say about this idea. Now it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, and God's going to speak to Nathan and he's going to give his direction and it is going to be a no on this request. We know from 1 Chronicles, it's the parallel passage to 2 Samuel, the reason why that God says no, and it's because that David was a man of war. His hands were filled with blood. As you study David's life, as we look at it in totality, have you been surprised how many battles David's been involved in? 
Uh, he has killed a lot of people in war. And because of that, God says, hey, look, you're not the man to build the temple. I want a man of peace, not a man of war. It's going to be Solomon who builds the temple. This had to have been a surprise to Nathan for God to wake him up, for God to speak to him saying, you got it wrong. You've got to go back to David. You told him yes, when in essence, the answer is no. I like what G. Campbell Morgan said about this section of scripture. He said, it is the utmost importance that we should ever test our desires, even to the highest and the holiest of them by his will. So I've got a desire. It's a good godly desire, but I have to go to the Lord and say, God, is this your will? Work excellent in itself should never be undertaken, save at the express command of God. The passing of time will always vindicate the wisdom of the divine will. You've noticed in our church, there's a lot of needs. There's a lot of opportunities to be able to serve. Those are good things. But does that mean that you're supposed to fulfill all of those needs? You've probably noticed in our community, there's a lot of needs. Are we to shut ourselves off from all of those needs? No. We look at our world, there's a lot of opportunities. But we need to go to the Lord and say, God, is this what you would have for me? Jesus didn't serve based off of need. He served off of the will of the Father. There was times that he told people no. He said, no, I can't stay here because my Father wants me to go on to this next city. So when you hear needs for children's ministry, you shouldn't rush and go respond to those needs unless God is leading you. It's going to be miserable for you and for the kids. There's needs in the youth department with junior high and, and senior high. And you could feel guilted into those things. I, I better go do that. But if you don't have a heart for teens, look out, right? It's not going to go well. Robert mentioned this morning a missions trip to Detroit. That's a good godly thing. You might have this desire to go to Detroit on this mission trip, but it may not be God's will. It may not be what he intends for you. And this can cause a lot of turning and a, and a lot of wrestling. I've known people that have felt like, man, I'm really supposed to be a missionary overseas. But it's not what God wants. It's not what God has called them to. And so God closes the door. You know, some people say, well, man, I, I really want to be an accountant. Well, that's a good thing to be an accountant. But God, God closes the door. Some people say, well, I really want to be on staff at a church or at a nonprofit. And God closes the door. But yet they get a promotion every time they turn their head in their current job. What's God doing? He's saying, you're right where you're supposed to be. But I wanted to be over here. I, I wanted to be, be over there. And so it's very important to take our desires and run them by the will of God. Verse five, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? I wish that sometimes as we study the scriptures that we had God's tone. Because the tone in which this sentence is said really determines the meaning. Like it could have been God saying it this way. Oh, would you build a house for me to dwell in? I, oh, David, I'm so blessed that you would think to build a temple for the ark to be able to dwell in. Or God could have been saying, would you build me a temple to dwell in? Like you've kind of got this all mixed up. I don't dwell in a temple. My presence is not limited to a building. And I think that's important for us to remember. Sometimes when we come into this place and we meet with God week after week, Wednesday after Wednesday, Saturday night, Sunday morning, we may think that God's presence is limited to this place. 
we're thankful for this building, but it's kind of creepy when you're all not here. Yeah, come down to the church sometime when there isn't, isn't a service. It's a big, empty building, you know, cinder blocks and, and carpet. And God's presence is just as much with us when we're in our cars and when we're in our homes, when we're at work, and yes, at Walmart even, you know? So is that the message that God is getting to David? Like, who are you to, to build a house for me to dwell in? You can't contain me. In verse 6, For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. God says, I've been fine. The ark's been fine. The ark's been dwelling in the tabernacle. The children of Israel had been on the move as they were traveling from Egypt into the promised land. In this section, you'll see God using the word I. He's emphasizing his work to David. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So God never requested this. He never commanded this. Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people over Israel. Amazing that David could go from being a shepherd boy to the king of Israel. Shepherds were usually the job of a servant. If you were a person of wealth and means, you wouldn't have your sons looking after your sheep. You would have servants looking after your sheep. It shows us that Jesse was not a wealthy man, that David was out hanging out with the sheep. It's not where you would think the future leader of Israel would be. And God speaks to David here. I want to remind you, look what I've done in your life. I took you from being a shepherd to this place. And any blessing that the Lord's brought into your life, any position that God's brought into your life, it's not because of our greatness. It's because of his goodness. Amen? It's because of his grace, his mercy, that he's allowed those things in our lives. Verse 9, and I've been with you wherever you've gone. And that's true in our lives as well. God is with you everywhere that you go. It's his promise to us as believers. And have cut off all of your enemies from before you and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. David at this time, he had a great name. He was a man of renown. He was famous. And to this day, David has a great name. Among believers, he's one of our favorite to talk about, isn't he? Of all of those in the Bible, he's one that most believers know of. Even unbelievers have heard of this shepherd boy who killed a giant. There's authors who are not saved that are fascinated with the story of David and have taken their attempt to write books. Normally, they get it wrong. They don't quite get the story correctly. They want to change some of the details, but you can see their fascination with David. My son Wyatt, he's three and a half years old. He gets out his little Bible, his toddler Bible, and do you know where he wants to go to every single time? David and Goliath. Every time he opens that Bible, he's like, Dad, where's David and Goliath? And he goes around talking about giants and, you know, heads being cut off and those type of things. And every little boy falls in love with the story of David and Goliath because his name is great. Why is his name great? Because God made him great. It's something that God did in the life of David. In verse 10, moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. 
nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. So God is saying, yes, I'm planting my people. I'm planting Israel in the promised land, a place for them to be protected. But here's the big surprise of the passage. God speaks to David and says, you want to build me a house? I'm going to build you a house, David. Here's my promise specifically for you. And in the no, in God saying no, there's something that God is saying yes to. And that's usually the case with the Lord. He is closing a door. He is saying no to this, and it's very difficult, and it's painful, and it's hard for us to accept, but he's also saying yes to some things. He's already said yes to to many things, and for us to accept the no many times is understanding what he's already said yes to. In verse 12, it says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, so when you're dead, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body And I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. What a promise. What a promise that God gives to David, saying, from your seed, from your descendants, they're going to rule and reign forever. Ultimately, this points to Jesus Christ. Jesus is born from the lineage of David. Jesus is born from the family of Jesse. Now, have you ever wondered why God chose to bring his son through the line of David? Was God not aware of what David was going to do? Had he not read ahead? Have you guys read ahead? Like, like chapter 9 is coming. It's a painful chapter in the life, life of David. David and Bathsheba. If we were going to choose someone that would be the line of Jesus Christ would we choose an adulterer and a murderer. Commits adultery. To cover it up, then kills Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. Uriah was a great man. A man of valor. One of David's own mighty men. Throughout all of scripture, God always calls Bathsheba the wife of Uriah. That's how God saw that. And is that who we would choose for the lineage of Jesus Christ. I bet most pastoral search committees, most groups of elders that were looking for a pastor at their church, the next teaching pastor. All right, let's, let's look at your resume here. Okay, um, I'm kind of noticing this adultery right here, and then this murder right here, and then that resulted in 20 years of prison time, because that's what would happen, you know? Someone commits murder, you life in prison, right? Oh, and now you're applying to be uh, the senior pastor of our church. Well, we've got some other options, thanks, right? Probably wouldn't be chosen to be the next pastor of the church, but yet God chose David. So did God make a mistake? No. God is giving us a message in this choice, and it's a message of grace. God is clearly saying, I'm sending my son to die for sinners, Because as you look at the genealogy of Christ in Matthew chapter 1, David's not the only surprise there. There's surprise after surprise after surprise, really? They're in the genealogy of Christ? They're in the genealogy of Christ? A prostitute in the genealogy of Christ? God is saying something. He's saying that he's sending his son to die for sinners. 
A lot of times I think in the church, we want our lives to be clean and put together. We want this perception that we have it all together, that we don't struggle. But is that your experience? Is that my experience? Is that my life? Is that your life? Our lives look a lot more like David. And you're saying, well, wait a second, I, I haven't committed adultery or I haven't committed murder. I bet you have in your heart. I bet we've committed murder in our heart. And God sent his son for the messed up part of our lives, the part of our lives that's not put together. He came for sinners. He loves us. He paid the price for our sin. And what God saw in David was not perfection, but he did see a man that was after his heart. The number one passion of David's life is he wanted to know God. He wanted to be close to God. And when he did sin, he didn't stay there. He repented. And our lives aren't going to be clean. They're not going to be put together. They're not going to be perfect. And when we sin, it's important like David that we repent, that we long to be in God's presence, that we grieve over how our sin affected our fellowship with God. But it's great hope and great encouragement that God chooses David to be the lineage of Jesus Christ. In verse 14, And I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. These future kings, God says, I'm going to be their father and I'm going to correct them when they fall and when they sin. But my mercy shall not depart from them as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. God removed Saul, but he's not going to take the throne away from David's descendants. God proved this mercy with Solomon and Rehoboam. Solomon went into gross idolatry, and because of that, God said, I'm going to split the kingdom. And Rehoboam, he was only king over two tribes instead of all 12. And God said the only reason that he didn't strip the kingdom completely from Rehoboam was because of his promise to David. God's mercy was shown. In verse 17, according to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. I appreciate Nathan greatly, even though we don't see very much of him, what we do see of Nathan is he was faithful to give God's message to David. How hard would it be to go back to David and say, I know you got all geeked out on building the temple, and you're really excited, and you already were starting to make phone calls, and you posted it on Facebook and Twitter, and, but you know what? Sorry, yeah, I, you can't do this. I was going to bed last night, and God, God spoke to me, and he goes back to David and gives David the word of the Lord. From verse 18 to the end of the chapter, we see the third section. It's David's response. How did David respond to all of this? Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. He goes and sits in God's presence. And he said, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? What's amazing about this is somehow David comprehended that the Messiah was going to come through his lineage, that Jesus would be the one, the King of Kings, that would be born, that would fulfill this promise to reign forever. And you say, Eric, how do you know? It comes from Acts 2, verse 30. Acts 2, chapter 30, Peter is commenting on this same section of Scripture, and this is what he says. Therefore, being a prophet, he's referring to David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. The Jews did have that expectation of a Messiah in the Old Testament, the anointed one that would come, and so David got the magnitude of this. 
He understood the greatness of this. The Christ is going to be born through my seed, and he's completely blown away, and he's saying, who am I? Have you ever had that response with the Lord when you really stop to think about Christ being given for us? We sang of Christ overcoming, and the sacrifice of Christ, this, this place where there was sorrow and love, where Jesus died for our sins, where God gave his son for us. What goodness. Why would God give his son for me? Why would God pursue me? Why would we be the sons and the daughters of God? Who, who am I to, to receive this? We look at that in Christ, and then we look at all the blessings that God gives to us. Who am I that God would bless me with a wonderful wife? That he'd give me four wonderful kids. And you, you think of your own story. You know, who am I to have these friends in my life? Who am I to be gathered together with, with God's people? And that's where David's at, and he responds in that place of worship. And I think this is a key understanding when God says no, is see what he's already said yes to, what he's already said yes to. And I don't want to undermine how difficult it is when God says no. But we need to look at, okay, God, you've already said yes to giving your son for me. And so even though I'm having great difficulty accepting what you're saying no to, I don't understand it. I don't know why my spouse would die. I don't know why my child would die. I don't know why I would have this chronic pain. I don't know why I'm unemployed. I don't like it. I'm disappointed with it. But yet, this is what you've said yes to. You gave your son for me. And I really don't understand why you would do that either. I don't understand why you would love me so much. And that's helped me a lot in those times of difficulties, to look at what God has already done, who he is, what he's promised, what he said yes to, then accepting what he said no to. In verse 19, and yet this was a small thing in your sight. David said, this was not hard for you, O Lord God. And you've also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come in this manner of man, O Lord God. So he's just so blessed in verse 20. Now what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant. What more can David say? Did you guys catch that? David's speechless. I don't have anything more to say. I think that David was pretty articulate, don't you? When you look at his life and you look at the worship songs that he wrote, and at this point he says, "I'm, I'm so humbled, I don't have anything more to say. And the grace of God causes us to be speechless. Paul got to that place as well. And Paul was a man that was good with words. This is Romans 8. He says, what then shall we say to these things? It's like, I don't have anything more to say. If God is for us, who can be against us? Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is for you? That he has your best interest in mind, that he loves you? I think with our words, we say that. But with our hearts, a lot of times it's hard to believe. Deep down, we go, God's not for me. He's really out to get me. God's just waiting to punish me. He saw when I messed up this week. He knows my heart. He knows my thoughts. And I know it deep down. He's just waiting to send that lightning bolt. And it's going to come right down on my head. Some of you are like, man, I don't know if I should go to church. Because if I come to church, God's going to burn the whole place down. I've heard that several times. People have told me that. And guess what? God has still not caught the sanctuary on fire. Right? He's a God of love. He's for you. How do we know that? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? God has proven his love for us. He's proven that he's for us by giving us his son. 
Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died. And furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. And this is far out. This is a blessing. Who can bring a charge against you? No one, because Christ has justified. Christ is right at the throne room of the Father today, making intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Nothing shall separate us from the love of God. The grace of God causes us to be speechless. In verse 21 and 22, for your word's sake and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant to make your servant know them. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, nor is there any God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Why did God do this? Was it because David was so great? Because David was so faithful? Because he prayed and worshiped? No, it was because God was great. And we need to understand that. Why does God bless your life? Why are you the child of God? Why are you the daughter of God? Because God's good. Because he's love, because he's pursued us. It's not because of our greatness, it's because of his greatness. Verse 23, and who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make for himself a name, and do for himself great and awesome deeds for your land, before your people whom you've redeemed for yourself from Egypt, the nations and their gods, for you have made your people Israel, your very own people forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. It's important for us to understand God's heart for the nation of Israel. God says they're his special people right here. He says that they're his people forever. And there's a theology called replacement theology where some believe that the church has replaced the nation of Israel. And especially when you look at the book of Revelation, it just doesn't hold up. Because in the book of Revelation, you see that there's 12,000 from each tribe making 144,000. We see from the book of Zechariah at Christ's second coming that the nation of Israel recognizes Christ as the Messiah. They see his wounds. They say, where did you get these wounds? And he says, in the house of my friends. And that's when they come to that place of repentance. If God forsakes Israel, then what hope is there for the Gentile church? God's testimony of his unconditional love is seen in his commitment to the nation of Israel. And you will meet believers that try to convince you out of God's heart and commitment for Israel. It's good timing on Monday, tomorrow morning, 40 of us are going to get on a plane in DIA and we're, we're going to go to Israel. And we really appreciate your prayers for us. It, it's a real privilege to be able to walk where Jesus walked, open up the scriptures. We're going to be in the valley where David killed Goliath. And part of the reason that we go is to bless Israel, to be able to pray for them. The money that comes in through tourism, it, it's real blessing to the nation of Israel. We'll be posting things on, on Facebook, but we also do really appreciate your prayers because things can get a little crazy over in Israel from, from time to time. So I'll be away for a little bit. There's a great line of teachers that are, that are coming. Pastor Ed Taylor is going to be here next Saturday and, and Sunday. A great friend of mine, he pastors at Calvary Aurora and thought it was neat to read this and then be able to get on a plane uh, tomorrow and, and go over to Israel. Verse 25, it says, Now, O Lord God, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as you've said, so let your name be magnified forever saying the Lord of hosts is the God over Israel and let the house of your servant David be established before you. 
So David begins all of this saying, God, I want to build you a house. God says, no, you're not going to do anything for me. I want to bless you. I want to build you a house. And that can be really hard to receive. Like imagine if you went to someone and said, hey, I really want to help you out. I want to do something for you. And they said, no, 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 you're not going to do anything for, for me. I'm going to send you home with a $5,000 check. Like, no, you're not. You know, no, 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 that, that's not going to happen here. And David could have really wrestled and said, I don't deserve this. God, you can't do this. But instead he says, let it be according to your word. And I think that that's our greatest response to God. We can wrestle with God over his grace. We can fail to believe it. We can fail to receive it. Or we can be humbled and say, God, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve to be your child. But let it be according to your word. And I think God is most glorified in our lives when we let him be God, when we receive his promises. God's saying, I've provided forgiveness. Would you receive it? Okay, let it be according to your word. God promises peace in our lives if we're willing to receive it, a peace that surpasses understanding. Okay, God, let it be according to your word. God promises guidance for those that ask it in faith. Let it be according to your word. And David's willing to live in the promises of God. And he realizes that that's how God's magnified. That's how God is is glorified. So we finish up the chapter. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, has received this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God. And your words are true, and you have promised this goodness to your servant. Now, therefore, let it please you to bless the house of your servant. He's receiving from the Lord, that it may continue before you forever. The Lord God have spoken it. And with your blessing, let the house of your servant be blessed forever. In First Chronicles, we find out the behind the scenes. David receives the word from the Lord, then he does what he can. And he prepares the supplies for Solomon to build the temple. So when Solomon becomes king, all he has to do is say yes, and everything is in motion. Everything is in place. And I think that's a big part of being able to receive the no's from God. We can get stumbled, angry, bitter when God says no, or we can take advantage of what he has said yes to, what we can do. And David sees this and goes, okay, I'm not going to be the one to build the temple, but I do have an opportunity in front of me to prepare all of the supplies. I see this really lived out in in the life of Amber's grandma. Her name is Jean Harder. And she's 85 years old, I think, uh, roughly. And she really had a heart to go on the mission field internationally. That's what she really felt called to. That's what she wanted to do. And then God had a different path for her life. And she ended up meeting her husband, who was a pastor, uh, Kenneth. He's gone home to be with the Lord. And he pastored from when he was in his early 20s till he was about 70 years old. And they had an effective life for Christ together, but it didn't look how she thought it was gonna look. But she decided, I'm gonna do what I can. I'm gonna be faithful where God has placed me to love my husband, to raise my kids, to, to serve as a pastor's wife. And in the churches that they served in, she always supported others in missions. She, she was the one that got the word out about missions and prayed for the missionaries. And you know where she is today? In Higginsville, Missouri, she's a church. Every Sunday morning, you're going to find her at church. And you know what she's passionate about? She's a, passionate about missions. Do you know what she's involved with in her church? She's involved in missions. 
And she could have been bitter. She could have been upset. I didn't get to be a missionary. I didn't get to go be on the field. And believe me, I've watched people that have lived their life that way. I felt a call from God. I felt like I was supposed to do this. I had all my hopes and desires to build the temple. But God said no. That was a great thing. That was a good desire, but it wasn't for you. And some of you today may be really upset about your life. You know, this is my life, and it doesn't involve building a temple. I wanted it to be involved with building a temple. Well, look at what God has said yes to. He said yes to giving you his son. He said yes to so many blessings in your life. And we can all get angry, we can all get bitter, or we can say, well, this is what I can do. This is what God has given me to what I can be involved in. And we have a great way to apply this message this morning. So we're going to take communion. Communion is going to be served to you. And as we sit and worship and we wait upon the Lord, think about the goodness of God, that God would give his son for you. The whole purpose of communion is to slow down our busy lives, to look to the cross, his broken body, his shed blood, Say, Lord, thank you. To examine our hearts for sin, confess that sin to the Lord. And as we prepare our hearts for communion, I want to give people an opportunity to receive Christ. We don't ever want to assume that everyone here has committed their hearts and lives to Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that we're saved by grace. And what does that mean? That we're saved through Christ's work. His death, his resurrection upon the cross. He died for our sin. What's sin? It's when we miss the mark. It's when we lie, when we steal, when we have lust and anger in our heart. That separates us from God, from all of eternity. And God doesn't want any to perish, so he sent his son to die upon the cross. And those that are saved are saved through faith. And it's a heart belief. It's a belief in the heart that Jesus is God, that he died for your sins and rose again and saying, Jesus, save me. And maybe this is your morning to receive from the Lord to receive his grace, to receive his goodness. If you've never received Christ, you know your heart. You know that you've never said yes to him and you'd like to this morning as we pray. I'm gonna give you an opportunity to raise your hand, to hold it up high. If you're sitting upstairs, God sees you, raise your hand to the Lord. If you're listening on the live stream through your computer or your phone, raise your hand to the Lord. You're here in the sanctuary, raise your hand to the Lord, respond to his grace. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your gift of grace. We ask that you would bless communion that you would speak to our hearts as we sit and we reflect and meditate upon Christ's broken body, his shed blood. Father, I remember the day in my life when you spoke to me with your love. I know it's not words that bring salvation. It's a work that you do. And so God, would you do that work in people's hearts?